Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. And as you've just seen from the video, this morning we're starting a series on Revelation. Now, don't get too excited. We're not going to answer all of your questions. In fact, by the time we're done, I bet you're going to have more questions than you have right now. And we've got a lot of material to cover this morning, but I want to begin with a couple of goals. Let me tell you what the goals of the series are, and then you can kind of keep track as we go through whether we're accomplishing them or not. The first goal, as is the goal every time we speak or every series, we want to know the gospel a little better so we can know it and then live it out more fully. One of the goals for this series is we want to get rid of some of the mystery and some of the mystique about the book of Revelation. We also want to learn some of the main themes of the book, but not just learn the themes, we want to live out those themes. You see, John wrote Revelation not just to communicate information. He wrote the book so people's lives would be changed. That's why we gather. That's why we pray. And so we want to live that out. And another goal is that maybe we can love our brothers and sisters who may disagree with our little spin on the details a little better and a little more faithfully. All right, so here we go. First of all, we're going to try to reveal Revelation, and you'll understand that title in just a few minutes. But the first thing I want to say to you is, when you read Revelation, when you think about Revelation, and what we're going to do as we go through the series, we need to avoid two problematic tendencies. And my guess is, to some degree, those tendencies are present in the room. They're certainly present in our culture and in the church. The first tendency is obsession. If you were to listen to some preachers or talk to some Christians, you would think that the Bible is primarily about the end times and how to avoid all the nasty stuff. I hate to disappoint you, that's not the primary message of the Bible. In fact, the primary message of the Bible is not eschatology, that's end times. The purpose and primary point of the Bible is Christology. The point and purpose of the Bible is Jesus and sometimes obsession leads to distraction. And if you're obsessed about end times and details and distracted from the main purpose, your obsession is pulling you away from what God wants you to do and live. So obsession is one problem. Another problem is avoidance. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question to see where we're on this. How many of you have ever done an in-depth, detailed study of the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. That's what I thought, about eight of you. And I know what some of you are thinking. Nobody understands what's going on. They fight about every detail. I don't know what it means. I stand no shot. I'm going to avoid it. That's a problem too. Because I'm convinced that if you don't know something and understand some of the main things about Revelation, you can't understand fully who Jesus is and the whole plan of redemption. And so if you avoid Revelation you wind up with a slanted or impoverished view of Jesus and what God wants to do. All right, so how are we going to tackle our subject this morning? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start by reading the first eight verses. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 1, and I'm going to read the first eight verses. And uh, not, not anything weird in the first eight verses, so we're safe this morning. And then... Uh, we're going to kind of work our way through, not through the passage in particular, but through some preparation, right? If you're going to climb Mount Everest, you need to make some preparation. 
The NFL kicks off in earnest today, right? They have preseason. They have, even though the, in the old days they used to play preseason, no more. Um, but they practice and get training before they play the games. Well, we need to pick up some of that preparation today, and we're going to do that through the lens of the first eight verses. So here we go. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him um, to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was and, who, and from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, I want to tell you, I struggled long and hard how to start this series. And uh, here's what I decided. You can tell me if you like it. But if you don't like it, don't tell me. Here's what I decided. We're going to start by talking about our pillars or building on the pillars. Now, we did a 10-week series on pillars a couple years ago in January, so I've really got to restrain myself here. I could talk about our pillars, no lie, for 20 hours easily. I've got like five minutes to talk about pillars. But you need to understand, our pillar, our Calvary Church pillars, are not ideas to kind of just store away in your head. Those pillars are tools with which you can understand the Bible better. Those pillars are lenses that will allow you to see accurately what the Bible says and how theology is put together. Those pillars are pilings that we build our understanding of who God is and what the Bible says. So you need to keep our pillars in mind as we go through the series. And I'm convinced if we were to keep our four pillars in mind, we will understand Revelation better and we're going to avoid 8,000 rabbit trails that will distract us from the main message. All right, so here are our pillars. I'm just going to mention them. We'll come back to them periodically through the series. Pillar number one, the Bible is a big story. The Bible is not a collection of 30,000 verses that you can kind of pick and choose the order you want. No, no, no. The Bible's a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, Revelation, it tells us most accurately in the Bible about the last act of the story. Well, you have to know how the kind of story concludes in order to understand and make sense of everything goes before it. So the Bible's a big story. Revelation is an integral, absolutely necessary part of the story. Secondly, the Bible is Jesus' story. If you're not sick of me saying this, saying this yet, you will be in the next 10 weeks or so. The Bible has a point and a purpose. 
The point is Jesus. The purpose is to lead you to him. And as we read through Revelation, we're going to read the book as a scrapbook, and Jesus is the subject. You will avoid rabbit trails and distractions if you recognize Revelation is a picture book, and Jesus is the primary subject. As our girls were growing up, um, Kim had made two scrapbooks, one for each of them. So we have an Ashley book and we have a Megan book. And uh, report cards would go in there, pictures would go in there, Christmas things would go in there, things that they did, newspaper, all goes in. Now, there are lots of other people whose pictures may show up in the Ashley or Megan. I show up in both of the books, believe it or not. But the main point of the Ashley book is Ashley, and the main point of the Megan book is Megan, and the main point of Revelation is Jesus. The main point of Revelation is not the beast, it's not the dragon, it's not Babylon. The main point of Revelation is Jesus. The Bible has a point and a purpose. Revelation has a point and a purpose. The point is Jesus, and a purpose is to lead you to him. If you get off track, you'll wind up in a cesspool of details and you'll never find your way out. The third thing is we need to prioritize or practice a prioritized theology. Now, here's what I mean by that, and you've heard me say this. All that the Bible says is true, but all that the Bible says is not equally important. And so, what is the priority? What's kind of secondary? What's tertiary, right? There's a slide up here in a couple of minutes you'll look at. We talk about a prioritized theology in terms of three concentric circles. Absolutes, convictions, and preferences. There it is, right? Your view of the end times, regardless of how ardently you hold it, is not a biblical absolute. Maybe it's a conviction. Maybe there are lots of preferences in your eschatological view, but you don't measure someone's Christian maturity by whether their view of the end times matches yours. That's what I meant as part of the goal. We need to love our brothers and sisters who may disagree on some of the details about Revelation. The absolutes are clearly and regularly taught. If you've got faithful Christians believing different sides, well, then that can't be an absolute. It's, clear, it's not clear and regularly taught. Maybe you have convictions. Maybe you have preferences. We need to make sure we keep them in the right circle. And the last thing is, the last one of our pillars is that biblical change, gospel transformation, is always inside out. And so what does John, John writes this book, John writes this letter, so people's minds will change, be sunk down into their hearts, their allegiances, their priorities, their hearts will change, and their hearts, as they become more wrapped around the gospel in Jesus, their lives will change on the outside. They're experiencing a bunch of mess on the outside, the key to experiencing and, and working through that mess in godly ways is not to learn the techniques to avoid persecution. It's to understand who Jesus is, understand who's in control, and live out of the gospel, not to live out of self-help. So those are kind of our pillars that will kind of guide us through. Pilings to build on, lenses to look at the book through, tools to use, not just ideas to tuck away into your head. All right, so that's kind of our pillars. Well, let's talk about some questions. And um, answer some basic questions. I know you have questions. Um, I'm doing this talk. You're going you're gonna to answer. I'm going to answer my questions, right? Well, hopefully answer some of yours. You can e email me some questions. Maybe we'll answer them. But here are some questions 
we need answers to as we come to the book. And as I said, you need some preparation if you're going to kind of, Revelation's strange, right? But we need to get, get rid of some of the mystique and the weirdness, and we can do that by answering some of the questions. First question is, what is this book? Like, there's not much else in the Bible like it. What the heck is it? Well, the first couple of verses tell us a few things. Interestingly, the book of Revelation is three things. It's not one thing. And that presents some of the confusion. The first thing you recognize from the verses on the screen, Revelation is a letter. You see in verse 4 there, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, right? John is writing a letter. And so Revelation's a letter. Now, we're going to look at, you know, the seven, or seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, but the whole book was intended for the seven churches. It's more, it would be more accurate to say, when we're talking about Smyrna, Ephesus, Thyatira, those are prophetic words to a local congregation, maybe representative of more than that. But the whole book was a circular letter written to the seven churches. All right? So it's a letter. The second thing you need to notice, back up in verse 3, it's a prophecy. So it's not just a letter. It's a prophecy. Now, here's a problem with vocabulary already. When I say prophecy, I'm betting a majority of you think foretelling the future. When you read the Bible, we read the prophets, God's telling us what's going to happen someday. Yeah, can I say it like this? Prophecy is not primarily predicting the future. Prophecy is primarily comfort and challenge for living in the present. You go back and read Isaiah. You read Ezekiel. You read Daniel. Um, it's, yeah, God's in control. God's working this stuff out. Not so you and I can draw detailed maps. No, prophecy is live in the present. If you're experiencing difficulty, prophecy brings comfort to you in the present. And prophecy brings challenge. Get your act together. God's in control. And one day, he's going to wind this thing up. But thirdly, and this is where the weirdness comes, thirdly, Revelation is an apocalypse. Now, when I say apocalypse, I know most of you think end times, war, Armageddon. The word apocalypse doesn't mean any of that. The word prophecy means, or excuse me, the word apocalypse means revelation. That's why it says the revelation. The Bible, the revelation begins with the word apocalypse in Greek. All apocalypse means is uncovering, unveiling. John, right, God says to Jesus, Jesus says to the angel, the angel says to John, I'm going to uncover some things. Now, when you uncover things, when you reveal something, it can have a twofold meaning in the Bible, and it does, and it does in Revelation. You can uncover what's happening in the present or the past from a different perspective. So, for example, in Job, Job is an apocalypse. Job is a revelation because in chapter 1, we learn about what's happening behind the scenes. Job doesn't know. Satan's approaching the throne. Satan's accusing him. No, it's an uncovering. So it can be an uncovering of what's happening on a grander scale than you can see, or it can be an uncovering, a revealing of something in the future. Now, apocalyptic literature was really popular, like 200 BC through 200 AD. It's not real popular today. Apocalyptic literature communicates 
in lots of symbols, lots of pictures. And here's the problem. We don't use those symbols anymore. And so they're really weird to us, but they weren't weird to the people back then. So I had the communications guys come up with some, you know, we still communicate in symbols today. Here's some symbols we communicate in today. Now here's what I bet. How many of you know something about the apple with the bite out? That's not Genesis 3. How many of you know something about the apple with the bite out? That's apple. And you could talk for a long time about Apple. Maybe you're an iPhone lover. You're an iPad lover. Maybe you're an Apple hater. I don't know what you are, but you could talk a long time about that. How about the little swoosh over there, bottom right? Well, that's the Nike swoosh, right? It's not just a mistake written on a smear. No, it's, it's a logo for a corporation. Maybe you love Nike's apparel, Nike's equipment. Maybe you don't like their political views. I don't know, but that means something to you. How about the uh, E Pluribus Unum Eagle? Stands for United States, right? Um, in one talon, uh, branches of peace. In the other, arrows of war. Some of you like one talon or the other, right? That's how it goes. But that means something to you. You could talk about that for a long time. They put two emojis up here, not thinking I would know what they are. I know what the crying happy face is. I have no idea what the fire is. I found out before the service, that means like it's really awesome, I think. Don't ask me what the... I'd, I've never sent an emoji, and if I ever send one to you, you have the authority and the right to come smack me, all right? No emojis. Now, how many of you know what that sick-looking parrot would be a symbol for? Raise your hand if you know. Yeah, some of you know. Jimmy Buffett died not too long ago, and Jimmy Buffett's fans are called parrot heads. And that symbol stands for grieving fans of Jimmy Buffett because he died. See, we communicate in symbols all the time. The problem with Revelation, the problem with biblical apocalyptic literature is not that it's full of symbols. It's that we don't use those symbols. We don't know what they mean. So as we go through, we're going to work on some of the symbols. All right, so what kind of book is it? It's a letter, prophecy, and apocalypse. How about the next question? I forget what it was. Uh, when was the book happening? Okay, so when was it written and when was it happening? So here's kind of a timeline um, of the first century and Roman emperors. You don't have to know the emperors, but I want to call your attention to two. Some people say Revelation was written during Nero's reign. So Nero reigned like mid-50s to late-60s. There was lots of persecution under Nero. In fact, under Nero, Paul was martyred, Peter was martyred, and a whole bunch of other Christians were killed. So could it be them? When you read Revelation, lots of persecution seems to be going. The majority of scholars, and I do not think Revelation was written under Nero, I think Revelation was written under Domitian. And there's a big difference between the persecutions. When Nero was reigning, the persecution was political. Nero was into urban planning. He wanted to kind of build Rome up, but in order to build it up, he had to get rid of all the mess that was there. So Nero burnt his own capital city down. There was such a backlash of people saying, what did you do? He blamed the Christians. And so persecution was political because Nero was blaming them for the fire in Rome. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the persecution of Revelation. The persecution under Domitian was religious persecution. 
It was worship persecution. Domitian, kind of a weird guy, and maybe we'll talk more about him as we go, uh, kind, of a, you know, kind of a weird figure, kind of slight. But Domitian had the title he invented for himself that everybody had to say, Domitian, our Lord and God. That's what he called himself. You don't ever want to pick up that title, by the way. Like, God does not bless the competition, right? And so Domitian, I am Domitian, the Lord and God. Now, to most people that lived in a Roman Empire, that's not a problem. You know, they believed in a million gods, just add one more. So Domitian's God too, we don't care. That was a problem for Christians. And when you were brought in and there was a trial, how did you prove that you were faithful to Domitian and to the empire? You would burn incense or you would offer a sacrifice to Domitian, my Lord and God. And the Christians wouldn't do it. They said, only Jesus is my Lord and God. And as best you can, you put yourself in their shoes. You may be tortured. You may lose your finances. You may lose your job. You may lose your hands. You may lose your head. What would you do? The Christians refused. And they were persecuted and many killed because of it. So it seems like that's the persecution going on. Now that wasn't empire-wide, but these little, these little sections of Asia Minor, right? These churches, then that whole area, they wanted to kind of suck into Domitian and the emperor, right? So what are they doing? They begin to ratchet up the persecution to show their faithfulness and loyalty to Domitian. And so they're not even doing anything in Rome, but they want to suck into the emperor. That's kind of a when it was written. Pretty tough times. All right, how about the next question? Well, how is the book organized? Here's a simple little outline. We'll go through this. I tried to make it as simple and memorable. <laughs> you said it's not very memorable. Here's the outline. Easy, easy to remember, right? Chapter one, we have the introduction of the author, small a, that's John, capital A, Jesus, right? It's the revelation of Jesus, that's the primary author, and John's secondary author. So that's chapter one. Chapters two and three, we get letters or prophetic words to those seven churches. Notice all the sevens now. Seven churches, well, we have seven spirits in seven lampstands, right? Chapter one. Then seven letters, two and three. From chapters four to 20, it's all about sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and interludes. That, that makes up most of the book. So that big hunk, sevens. And then lastly, a couple chapters, new heavens, new earth. So there's a simple outline. Hopefully you memorize it or think about it. One, two, and three, four through 19, four through 20, 21, 22, that's the book. We'll make our way through in the next few weeks. Uh, we'll be picking up one, two, and three over the next couple weeks. All right, one more question. And uh, I can spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to kind of breeze through it. How have Christians approached the book? Now, here, here's what you need to hear me say. There's no one in this, or maybe one or two people in this room, but no one else approaches Revelation and this series as a blank slate. You already think you know what it says. So when you read the book, you're reading it through that lens. You're looking for data that supports your view, and you're looking for other things to show why other people are wrong. That's how you're reading it, right? You're reading it through your particular perspective. Now, I'm going to try to work to 
break your perspective. I don't, I, I'm not going to present a perspective. I'm just going to say, pick up the pillars as your perspective. Don't use your prefabbed understanding of Revelation as your perspective. But you do need to know there are four basic approaches to Revelation. These aren't interpreting the details, four approaches to the book. So you need to know what they are before you get started. Here's another way. Here, here's the question that these approaches are going to answer. When does all the stuff in chapters 4 through 19 happen? When does seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, when does that happen? The answer to that question determines your approach. All right, so here are the four approaches. I'm going to go quickly. The first approach is the preterist approach. Preterist just means it's Latin for past. And so there are lots of godly Christians, right, people who love the Lord and study the Bible. They believe everything in Revelation, almost everything except maybe chapters 21 and 22, they believe everything in Revelation is already past, already past. Um, that was the standard view up until 150 or so years ago. And so before you look down your nose, that, that view was the most common view, right? It's all past. Therefore, Revelation is almost like a history book. What relevance? It's like Exodus, right? It's like Joshua. We read it as history. And so all the stuff, right? Bowls, trumpets, seals, all that stuff already happened. That's the preterist view. The second view is the historicist view. A little different. The words may not sink up in your mind. The historicist view says all the stuff in chapters 4 through 19, right, 4 through 20, that lays out the history in symbolic form between Christ's first coming and second coming. So you can now draw a map between Christ's first coming, that first Christmas, and Christ's second coming, and the whole book, 4 through 19, 4 through 20, it lays out that history. Now, before you think that's a stupid idea, let me tell you a few people who held this view. Martin Luther, John Wesley, most of the Protestant reformers, all the Anabaptists, the Puritans, that was their view. And so God's laying out in symbolic form the history between the first and second coming. The third view is the futurist view. Now remember, we're talking about chapters 4 through 20, 4 through 19. The futurists say, all that stuff in 4 through 19, none of that's happened yet. We're looking forward to that. My guess is... That would be the view that most of you are familiar with because maybe you've watched Left Behind. Um, in the futurist view, we get all those big, fancy-sounding words, right? So futurists are premillennialist, pre-tribulationist, dispensationalist. They're all futurists, right? And my guess is that's the view most of you. Be careful about imposing your view on what's there, all right? Um, another view would be the idealist view, and this view says... We're not looking for a correspondence of details. We don't go to the symbol, and right, so we'll go to the parrot head, right? We don't look at the fourth blue feather on the parrot's head and say, oh yeah, that was that crazy fan in Philadelphia that ran down on stage Jimmy Buffett, right? No, no, picture symbols are not meant to be atomistically interpreted. They're symbols, and idealists would say, we're not looking for specific, what does this mean? An idealist would say, all of those images in chapters 4 through 19, they're saying, this is on average, this is a pattern of how good and evil wage war. This is how God interacts with evil and brings his plan to fruition. All right. Now, I would say, 
there's some, I like some things about each of those schools. Other things I don't particularly like about each one. Um, and as we go through, I will give you occasionally kind of, well, this is what a preterist would say. This is what a futurist would say. Um, and I'll probably say, this is why a futurist interpretation is not going to work here. And this is why an idealistic interpretation is not going to work here. So, but I want you to know the four basic views as you go through. There they are. All right. Next point. Oh, we're almost done. Good. Well, as I said, the Bible has a point and a purpose. The point's Jesus' purpose to lead us to him. And we're heading into communion, the end of the service. And here's what I want to say as a prelude to that. It's really cool to learn about how different people understand the book. It's really neat to think about symbols and how to decode them. And you can be an expert on all those details of Revelation and miss the point. The point's Jesus, and the purpose is to lead you to him. So here's how I want to end the sermon and lead into communion. I want you to take your Bible or take your phone, your iPod, whatever you're using, all that Apple equipment, take it, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 6, and I'm going to stop and tell you what John writes at the beginning of the book. In those verses, he tells us three things about who Jesus is. And then he tells us three things that Jesus did. And you know what's amazing? If you can wrap your head around who he is, you will fall on your knees when you look at what he did. So here we go. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. The word witness in Greek is the word martis. Now, the word martyr has taken on a new meaning in our day where people feel, feel sorry for themselves that they're not getting what they want, and so they're playing the martyr. But if you were going to testify in a court or even testify to what you know before a neighbor in the first century, you were a martyr. You were a witness. So many Christians, thousands, lost their lives for their testimony and what they said, that the word for witness became martyr. Jesus, the faithful martyr, he spoke the truth to us, the good and the bad, and he lost his life for speaking and being the truth. The firstborn from the dead. That's the next phrase. Some people probably say, well, that's not right. Lazarus beat him to it. Yeah, big difference. Everybody else that was raised to the dead before Jesus, you ever think about this? They all died again. Right? Hey, you didn't get one funeral, you got two. 
Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He died as a faithful martyr, and he's the first one to be, to be raised with a resurrection body, and he will never die again. And one last thing. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's present tense, friends. It doesn't say he will be. It says he is. So whatever throne you think sits pretty high in this world and you need to submit to, here's what we need to remember, and you'll see it in this book. There's a throne higher than every other throne. And on that throne sits Jesus Christ. But look at what he did. To him who loves us, present tense. Doesn't say he loves us. He still loves us. And what did that love drive him to do? Freed us from our sins by his blood. That was the price tag. He voluntarily, willingly paid that debt that we could never pay. And third thing he did, he made us to be a kingdom and priest. You're going to see a tension over these next few weeks in the book of Revelation. Here's the tension. The tension concerns the nations, all right? Those outside of God's kingdom, those non-believers, right? That, 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 they're called the nations, right? Here's the tension. The nations, those that are outside Christ, are objects of witness, objects of mission, and they're objects of judgment. Don't make the mistake. Objects of mission, that's our part. Objects of judgment, that's God's business. When we cross the line from being in mission and witness to being condemning and judge, you're now playing God's role. He doesn't bless the competition. I hope you'll join us for these next few weeks as we unveil and reveal Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the scrapbook of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess that as we come to this book, lots of strange ideas in our mind, lots of things that we've heard that may not make sense or things that we don't understand. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to work out our pillars Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. And as we do that, help us to worship as we see so many do in Revelation repeatedly. Help us to join that throng. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.